This is a crowd podcast. Hello, I'm Geraint Thomas. And I'm Tom Fordyce. And you've just entered the Geraint Thomas Cycling Club. Brought to you by Zwift, the indoor cycling app where fun is fast. Welcome. Tom, episode 14. We're on the home straight now here, aren't we? I hope you've uh, started planning series two. Series two. Do you know, I have started thinking about series two because I've massively enjoyed doing this. Hopefully you've enjoyed it as well. And there's loads of things we can still talk about, aren't there? We've only just started just brushing the surface of pro cycling. Yeah, don't take this the wrong way, but I've been pleasantly surprised. I've enjoyed my chats with you. (laughs) (laughs) That's nice. We're being very British male about this, aren't we? Very British male about it. Well, okay, well, we'll definitely do a Series 2. Maybe we'll have a little gap for you to go and win some races and then we'll come back and do some more. <laughs> yeah, I'll sign up for that. Sounds good. Perfect. Now, listen, I want to start this episode, G. We got a really nice email in from one of our members, Simon, about his good lady, Tracy. Now, those are Simon's words, not mine about Tracy. But I think this email is what the GTCC is all about. And it's actually given me an idea. So here's the email from Simon. I've always cycled, mainly commuting, but last year, having entered semi-retirement, I decided to buy a better road bike. While looking for a second-hand one, I noticed one that would be the right size for Tracy, so I took a chance and I bought it. Tracy hadn't ridden for a number of years, so took some persuading, but she quickly got to love it and was not deterred by the initial pains associated with it. She's now the one insisting we go out on our bikes, and she's the one insisting on planning weekends away. Ah, fair play, that's nice, isn't it? It's good to see people enjoying riding their bikes. Uh, Yeah, and it made me think, gee, once COVID is over and everyone has got their GTCC club jersey, which is coming soon, do you reckon we should actually try and turn this into a proper, proper cycling club? So, you know, for example, if I'm racing in the Northwest Cyclocross League, I could wear my GTCC club jersey. At the moment, I'm in the results as privateer because I'm not a member of another club. So you just get called privateer. But I could be in the racing results as GTCC, and so could all our members. 100%. Great idea. It's just, uh, I don't know what that involves. That's more work for you as a Mr. Chairman. Oh, what have I done? But, yeah, that's a quality idea. So, yeah, I'm, I'm all up for that. Yeah, let's get people yeah, racing for the GTCC or just, like you say, touring around the world as you know with their jerseys. And hopefully that's not too far off as well. Okay, in that case, you and I are both going to pledge that we will do everything we can to make this a proper, proper proper cycling club even if that means me giving the job to someone else right g so for today's episode i've gone for something we've talked about previously and a lot of our members have been calling for this as well so today we're talking about nutrition yes i like it i've definitely uh yeah heard a lot of people asking for this so yeah for me it's changed a lot over my career really to start with well it was just eat when you're hungry and you know no real thought behind it then on the track it was a lot more power and explosive sort of based so power to weight and sort of being as lean as possible wasn't really an issue then obviously going into grand tours is a lot more of an issue so varied a lot through my career I think and probably at the worst point at the moment I think with uh well the hardest not the worst but yeah it's just hard for me I think for me it's the biggest challenge I think I love training I love racing you know, pushing your body, working hard, all that type of stuff. But oh, it's just the the twenty four seven, just nutrition on your mind, which is the 
the hard bit. And my body's not necessarily, naturally, I'm not built for a, to be a GC guy, I don't think, you know. You know, look at a traditional sort of GC rider there, the small, skinny types. They obviously still struggle to lose that last kilo, I would have thought, I'd hope. But um, yeah, for me, it's just, it's a big old effort. What's your wild fancy food? Like, what would be your pin-up food? To be honest, like, it's just everything that I don't allow myself to eat now. So basically, you know, burritos, burgers, pizzas, Sunday roasts, because, you know, living abroad, you don't get to have them, you know, back when I was a kid, I used to have them every Sunday religiously, you know? So, yeah, just anything you sort of uh, deny yourself during the season, really, yeah. And it's kind of, it comes at a weird point as well, because when I stop racing and stop riding my bike for 30 odd hours a week, that's when I eat all the rubbish food. So it's like a double whammy. Like you stop exercising and you eat 100% more fat and everything else. And then when you're training super hard and you're doing 30, 35, even 40 hour a week sometimes, and you're having salad and fish, you know, it's just like, that's when you should, surely that's when you can eat the the more high calorific stuff. But yeah, it's kind of, it's a weird world, isn't it? A professional cyclist. <laughs> Do you ever, like, let's say you're out for a meal with Saar or with some of your mates and they don't have to eat the same stuff that you do. Do you not find it really hard not to just get a bit jealous or just a bit angry where someone's openly eating chips in front of you and you're like, that's just disrespectful. <laughs> no, I, I kind of enjoy it when they do because it's kind of like, yeah, just have what you want, you know? But at the same time, if I do go out for a meal, I kind of try to plan it in around my training as well. So it's kind of like, I've had a big day and it's like, oh, okay, I can have a little treat now and, you know, you might have a few of size chips and then I might allow myself to share a dessert with her, you know, mental. That's rock and roll that, isn't it? But um, <laughs> yeah, so, so many times though, I've kind of like, you know, I've ordered like the fish, you know, maybe a salad or something. And then Sar's gone for a steak and immediately they bring it out and they immediately just give me the steak and Sar the fish, you know, and we have to do that swap over the table. But yeah, it's just kind of, a necessary evil I guess you know you, you just got to do it it's all worth it in the end like there's no better feeling than actually getting down to that race weight and feeling like oh yeah finally I've got it now I've nailed it I'm in shape I'm ready to go and you know bring it on and you know let's go and race but to get there is oh, it's, it's hard especially then when you're only at that sh- in that shape for me anyway like maximum six eight weeks and then yeah you start to sort of pile it back on pretty sharpish right i'm looking forward to this episode let's tuck in well boys france did not win the six nations it was there for the taking but let's face it france will be back and the world cup 2023 will be our time to shine i agree benji you're nearly back and the good news is we'll be with you all the way. Love the stories, the big name guests and the scandal behind the scenes in French rugby as we build towards an epic tournament in France in the World Cup 2023. There you go. That's adopted Frenchman Johnny BT, full-on Frenchman Benjamin Kayser. And you can catch hey, us hey. on the French Rugby Podcast every Wednesday on all your usual podcast platforms. Au revoir. Écoutez et téléchargez ce super podcast. Merci. The GTCC are delighted to be sponsored by our friends at Amp Human. They're dedicated to helping athletes at all levels achieve their potential, even amateurs like me. 
Amp's flagship product, PR Lotion, is the world's first and only lotion to deliver the natural electrolyte bicarb to the body. Now, gee, this all sounds quite fancy, but you've been using it for, what, a couple of years now? Does it help? Yeah, definitely. And it's not just any old ad this either, you know, to try and get a bit of cash in to help produce the pod. But I genuinely feel like it does help. Kind of lather it on wherever you want, whatever muscles are working. So, yeah, bang it all over my legs for any hard session or, uh, yeah, time trial. Well, there's studies as well that show a 50% reduction in muscle soreness when using PR lotion. And you can benefit too with 25% off your next purchase using the code GTCC25. That's the letters GTCC and the number 25. Just visit amphuman.com forward slash GTCC and start training with your PR lotion today. Okay, Tom. So, uh, yeah, got a decent guest, I think. He's, uh, well, he's worked with Liverpool Football Club before they got really good. I don't know if that's anything to do with him. Also, he works in John Moore's University in Liverpool. Um, I'm sure he'll fill us in on exactly what he does, but something to do with metabolism and, and whatnot. He also worked with us at Sky. <laughs> and yeah, he was, well, key part to me winning the tour, really. Doesn't work with us anymore. So yeah, welcome, James Morton. I always got a struggle to remember your name because I always call him Murph because uh, not after your partner, Tom, but after Danny Murphy. That would be freaky. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, we always thought he had a, a good likeness to, to Danny Murphy. So Although Murphy has sort of aged a bit recently, whereas James has kept his youthful looks, as we can all see. That's because you're reading the right things, James, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yeah, thank you, thank you. Get around for that... Uh... Lovely introduction there. I think you couldn't have described myself better. <laughs> the first time I met uh, Murph, actually, was down in Nice. And um, our nutritionist before that was um, Nigel Mitchell. He was a lovely guy up in the north of England. and uh, But he was quite plump for a nutritionist. And then uh, <laughs> <laughs> you never trust a fat nutritionist. And then James came along and he was shredded. He was ripped. He was leaner than all of us. So then we were like, oh yeah, we're in for a, we're in for our times now. Well, let's hope Nigel's not listening to this, Jay, because you've probably r- ruined any relationship that you had there. <laughs> nah, he, it, well, it's a fact, isn't it? He's, he's, <laughs> he's, he's got a bit of timber, but he's a great guy though. Full of, yeah. Yeah. But uh, he won't be listening anyway. Don't worry. Maybe that's just two different schools. I don't know, James. You tell me maybe there's two schools of being a nutritionist. One is that you are your shop window and the other is that you are your taster and that maybe maybe you've taken one approach and he took the other. <laughs> yes, I would say I'm, I'm definitely in the former school there, Tom. I think if you want anyone to change their behaviour, then you have to look the part yourself. In that intro as well, Tom, I forgot to mention Murph actually works with a lot of boxers as well and... UFC guys as well? Yes, yeah, we have done, yeah. Yeah, he definitely knows his stuff about making weight and stuff. When I came to Team Sky, if if I'm being honest, I was probably a little bit nervous at the start because cycling wasn't my sport. I think the last time I rode a bike was riding away from the police growing up in Belfast. Um, (laughs) So cycling as a sport was quite different to me. But what I would say is that I did know how to make people lose weight from my experiences in boxing. And I think getting the likes of yourself and some of the other guys ready for a grand tour kind of is like making weight for a fight. 
you've got between eight to 12 weeks to get down to your optimal race weight, so to speak. And that was one of the things that I enjoyed most from working with you guys over the years, was that making weight element while still fueling well and performing and training every day. Yeah. What about the whole, because it's making weight, but then there's, for us, holding it for a month rather than, you know, a boxer go Ricky Hatton, you know, suddenly just day after the fight, blow up 10 points, whatever. That's got to be the biggest difference I would have thought. I often describe what it was like to work with you by saying you were the Ricky Hatton of the Peloton. Because <laughs> That's the first I've heard of that. Thanks for that, mate. <laughs> well, in, bet- in between the Tour de France and the Tour of Britain, there quite easily have been another five or six kilograms that got put on. That's very true, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but you're totally right because, of course, you guys, um, it's, it's very, very hard to sustain your optimal race weight for longer than an event like the Tour de France, those three weeks, you're you're on the limit, really, aren't you? You're on the limit for those three weeks. Whereas a fighter can make weight three, four, five times per year, and they only have to perform on that one night. And then, of course, after that 36 minutes, it's back to their normal life. Riding for 21 days in a row is a total different ball game. I think I got to the stage where I could almost predict what Geraint would wake up the next morning. So even at the dinner table the night before stage, I could almost predict what he would be the next morning because we got to know each other so well and I just knew how his body reacted to, to racing over that duration. Wow. I mean, there's so much. Nutrition is so important to cycling, isn't it? So it always seems to be very carby, James. Is that the sort of thing? I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll get into what amateur riders should eat in, in a moment. But for the pro riders, let's say G's in the tour, has a big breakfast and he's out on the road. What's the balance of stuff that he should be eating then? Well, to be honest, Tom, that really depends on what the stage looks like that day. And it also depends on what the stages look like in the coming days. Because what you do in one stage can almost predict how you would perform in the next stage. Now, on a big race like the Tour de France, the actual energy expenditure per stage could range from 2,500 calories to 5,000 calories, depending on how hard the stage is. But as I mentioned before, with riders like Garang, because we were trying to keep him at his optimal race weight for as long as we could, it it is actually very easy to put on weight in a Grand Tour. But it's also very easy to lose weight if you're not keeping an eye on it. So we would change what we would eat every day, depending on the stage. But in terms of a general rule of thumbs, you're right, it is very carbohydrate heavy because, of course, carbohydrate is the main fuel. And actually, I think that's probably one of the mistakes that both amateurs and professionals do make is they either underfuel or they overfuel and there's there's no in between they go to extremes and as a result it, that can be catastrophic for performance yeah i think what you said when murph says there about the extremes i think that's the one thing that i'm always sort of i'm kind of all or nothing you know whether i'm out for a few pints it's never a few pints you know it's all or nothing <laughs> when it comes to that or when it comes to doing like for instance, part of our training would be like low carb rides, which basically, well, exactly that. You, you don't eat many carbs and it's trying to kind of two things come with that. Obviously you burn fat for, for fuel, which makes you more efficient. And at the same time you're burning fat, so you lose a bit of weight. So yeah. So when it came to those rides, we'd have basically an omelet for breakfast and then we'd have protein on the bike. How big? Three eggs, maybe two whole eggs and then one white. Okay, it's a proper sized omelette then. This is encouraging, yeah. <laughs> uh, and a coffee and and that was it basically. And then you'd go out 
and you'd have um, yeah, your pro-peptide, basically, which is your protein in your bottles. And then generally it would be like, oh, okay, guys, try and, you know, do that for two hours and start eating carbs. But me being all or nothing, you're kind of like, well, I reckon I could go three or four. And then you end up doing the whole ride <laughs> or, six or hours. six. <laughs> yeah. So um, <laughs> that's kind of how it is for me. But and the problem is then it's afterwards and you, you're obviously hungry. In the evening, you might eat a bit more than you should have, or it's a knock on for the next day as well. So it's definitely big picture where you have to bear in mind a lot, not just like in the moment, which is what I, yeah, like I say, get carried away with. Yeah. So what would your breakfast look like on a grand tour, G? If you if we were at the the breakfast table with you, say, I don't know, a week into the Tour de France, what are you tucking into? Uh, so what, they'd have porridge there. There'd be yogurts, um, pasta and rice. The pasta for breakfast, G, right? Porridge, lovely. Coffee, yes. I imagine there's a smoothie or something as well. But for me, even if I knew that I should be eating pasta or rice for nutritional reasons, like it still doesn't make it any easier for my head to go, yeah, I'll have a nice bit of pasta for breakfast. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it's just because I've been in the game for a while now, but I actually look forward to my pasta for breakfast sometimes. Nice penne, bit of sriracha sauce, bit of parmesan on top. Bloody lovely, that. Are you actually hungry at that breakfast or are you just shoving it down? Um, yeah, when you get to the third week of the Grand Tour, especially because generally you've got mountains coming, we would, I wouldn't have much porridge because it's high in fibre and stuff. So I'd lean towards more pasta and rice. And by then, yeah, you are getting certainly rice. You're sick of rice, just rice. Like, I, I don't eat rice anymore at home. You know, if I have a curry, I just have chips with it. Don't tell Murph that. <laughs> they go half and half. <laughs> Oh, no, mate. Rice is just, oh, it's the devil's food now to me. Like, I can have it at a race, but that's it. I never have it at home. So, James, how do you get around that? Because if you want someone like G to be eating rice for nutritional reasons, that's a problem. Um, I don't think it's a problem because these guys, out of all of the athletes that I've ever worked with, Tom, I think cycling is the sport where you can make the biggest difference to performance. So I think a lot of the riders are naturally more enthusiastic about eating rice anyway because they can all see the performance benefit and especially the, the British guys because the British guys like G have been through a good coaching system so they were quite coachable and receptive to new ideas the Spanish guys and the South American guys they're not so keen on rice they're more pasta lovers compared to rice lovers yeah I think that's a big point with the whole culture I think as Brits who've come up through you know with Dave B and that whole just sort of innovation and, and trying to just learn new stuff. Whereas a lot of other nationalities can be sort of held back by their sort of beliefs almost and stuck in their own ways about doing things. Um, especially if you have like, I don't know, you sign a, a really good successful rider who's 30 odd. He has his way of doing things already in his mind, you know, and to then try and get him to change certain things can be quite hard for some people. Yeah. And, and to be fair, at a race as well, it is, purely it's fuel it's not really you're not eating for enjoyment most of the time it's you're basically eating what you need to perform and and that's it it's not it's certainly not like you're going out for a meal with your mates you know it's totally different vibe can i ask you a question g what i, I i'm not familiar with sriracha what is sriracha what you t- yeah i know mate like i'm in my head it could be tomato based it could be pest like pesto maybe i'm thinking it's even something like cheeky sweet pasta 
this will change your world, mate. You've got to get this. It's like an Asian sort of spicy tomato sauce type thing. And uh, and it's not even that bad for you. So you can, you basically, I try not to buy it at home because when I go away racing, I basically have it for breakfast, lunch and dinner, no matter what I have. I don't have it on my porridge, but you know. <laughs> Tom, you've, you've just reminded me of a, a story from when I worked at Liverpool, uh, thinking about the differences in sports. I remember working with a new signing that came in. Um, let's say he was a little bit podgy, so had a little bit of weight to lose. But his perception was that he was it was all genetics. He was genetically predisposed <laughs> to, to storing body fat. So we, we sat down and we went through the usual dietary analysis type approach and started off with breakfast. And I was like, okay, then tell me what a typical breakfast looks for you. And of course, it was cheese and biscuits for breakfast. Then we went through lunch and different snacks. There was a lot of chocolates. And then, of course, the these cultures eat large plates of pasta late in the evening, 11 o'clock, they sit down to eat their dinner. Anyway, where we got to the conversation was we revisited the question of, do you think that it is genetics that perhaps is making you a little bit podgy? <laughs> Thankfully, at that point, the player then realised that it wasn't genetics and he needed to stop buying cheese and biscuits for his breakfast. So I think that really just sums up the differences between the sports and the differences between the cultures. I almost feel like he'd done well to get in his career to get the point where he's being signed by Liverpool if he'd been eating cheese and biscuits for breakfast all his life. Well, you should you should ask Crouchy about some of those stories because I'm sure he would have some interesting ones on nutrition for <laughs> yeah. football players. James, is there much flexibility for riders? So let's say you, you've got eight riders in a team and you are thinking with the chefs about what they're going to have for lunch, what they're going to have in their musettes, the bags they're going to be given. If, for example, G has got a totally different taste to me, can I, can I have what I want in that musette or a bit of flexibility? There is a bit of flexibility, of course. The, the main thing is that each rider gets the correct amount of, well, specifically carbohydrate that they need to fuel Tom. Um, but of course, we customise that according to their own preferences because the most important thing is that they actually consume the food. So whatever works for that particular rider. Uh, we got to the stage with G in 2018 where we were pretty much weighing out every single meal that he would have for breakfast and in his evening meal and his recovery after the stage so that we were we were absolutely dialed we were taking care of everything and i always remember i think it was stage 11 or stage 12 g one of the first ones in the alps and i remember dave in the bus starting to wonder is is Garant going to blow up at any point in this race are we going to are we going to run out of fuel and, and I knew that we wouldn't because we were just so dialed and, and you were so involved in the process of following everything that we had set out that I think you and I just knew there's no way you were going to blow up at any point. Yeah, and I think the good thing from my point of view as well then is you build that trust over time because I can't even remember when you started, Murph, but it was a good few seasons we'd been together and I kind of just knew, right, I'll just eat this and I'll be fine. You can have a bit of extras, you know, if just for morale, a bit of jam on bread, which is like a treat. You know, but yeah, <laughs> you have confidence in it then. Yeah. And you just like, you think, right, if I nail this program, then that's the eating and the nutrition sorted basically. But Tom, when you, when it comes to musettes, it's kind of, everyone just kind of, it's a stock standard sort of thing really that's in the bag because otherwise maybe the leader, if they're a bit sort of fussy, they might get a little something extra that they want, but you can't really, you know, there's eight in the Tour de France now these days, for instance. You grab a bag, there's eight bags. If everyone's got their own specific bag, it's going to take you 10 minutes to get the right bag to each person. So 
Now, it's kind of a stock standard what's in there. Then if you want anything extra, you can kind of take it with you at the start or something. Like Edvald, actually, he was um, prone to just getting bad stomach um, with certain drinks and that. So he had his own drinks, which I had one of his once, and it was absolutely vile. I don't know how that helped his stomach. It tastes like fish. But he was Norwegian, though. With a Norwegian, it probably was. (laughs) Yeah, it's probably salmon bloody blended up or something. I don't know. So, yeah, that's the only time when it's been actual... Yeah, one guy's had his own sort of bag. The rest of the time, we have a meeting normally before the start of a Grand Tour, which is supposed to be 10 minutes, ends up being 50. And uh, just discussing what should be in the feed bags and all this and that. Yeah, just for ease, it, um, it's a standard for, for everyone, really. So, James, what would... let's? I'll give you an example, because obviously, as you say, it depends on the, the sort of stage. Let's say it is... A transitional stage, so it's it's flattish. There's no great climbs in it. It's a case of just keeping going for five hours. If I were handed one of those musettes and I dip my hand inside it, what am I finding? Well, you'd probably find the usual suspects, which would be a, a mix of rice cakes, homemade, of course, um, a mix of energy bars, science and sport energy bars, science and sport gels. Occasionally, we would sneak in a fizzy drink every now and again to keep people happy. But it's really the mix of the rice cakes, the solid energy bars and the gels. And quite often a lot of the Spanish and South American riders would eat little paninis, so little small sandwiches. That's that's pretty much the stock stock menu, G, isn't it? Yeah, that's pretty much it. Like I basically have rice cakes all the time. Like you say, the Continental guys love their little panini. Even the Coke, I think the Coke has sort of taken a back seat these days. There's no there's no little cans of Cokes anymore either. We need to talk about these rice cakes, okay? Because, gee, when we were doing your first book, you would talk about the rice cakes all the time. And at that stage, one of my boys was at the same sort of age as Max's. So you will now be familiar with the sort of rice cakes that Max eats. These little discs of, of like, puffed rice, which are so insubstantial that they wouldn't keep you going for five minutes on your bike. <laughs> so it took me a long time to get my head around what you meant by rice cake. So, James, can you please describe what a rice cake is for a cyclist. Yes. So our standard recipe was obviously you need a rice cooker to start with. So you get your rice cooker. We would mix in 500 grams of risotto rice, boil that up, um, and then you put in all all of your extra ingredients. So that could be things like honey or agave syrup. It could be jam if you want to have like a sweet type mixture. You could actually have a savoury type rice cake, so you might put in ham and some Parmesan cheese, for instance. But ultimately, once you've mixed in all of that rice mix, you then um, put it in the fridge to cool down. It hardens up, so you've got this nice tray bake of of solidified rice, which you can then cut into standardised sections that give you around 20 to 25 grams of carbohydrate per serve. And to be fair, it's a great way of fueling because not only is rice a easily digestible carbohydrate, but of course it retains water. So you're actually fueling and hydrating at the same time. I think, gee, we should put the, the recipe, because you can find this recipe online, can't you? We should put this recipe on our, our social feeds for, for the GTCC. I tried them once, right, when I was doing a long mountain bike ride, because, gee, you had been absolutely eulogising about these rice cakes. The fact they were... You know, you could sort of have three or four in a day and you'd still fancy another one. So, James, I went through this process you described. I boiled up the rice, I put in some cream cheese and yep. I put in some coconut oil and then I've squashed it down the first half into the tray and then I've mixed in some like chopped 
apricots, some cranberries, a bit of jam, squash the other half on top, done the whole tray bake thing. And what my feedback would be would be that for the first time I did it, first long while I did it, me and my mate thought, this is amazing, right? They don't get bashed up. They're quite solid, aren't they, in your back pockets of your jersey. So it's quite, it's quite good stuff to carry with you. The third time we did it was a really long ride and all we had was rice cakes for about eight hours. And we agreed at the end of that that we could never again eat another rice cake. We just, we'd over rice caked it. Yeah, I'm different. I just love them. I have them all the time. Like uh, at a race, you know, it's not like I just go and make them now and just have them for a snack. But yeah, there's so many different varieties though, Tom. You've got the choco, which is a bit of like chocolate in there with cranberries. Is that where I'm going wrong? Yeah, you need the variety. Apple, apple's a good one. So you've got a bit of apple there, like real apple now. Bit of apple juice, few raisins. Yeah. They're good. Um, speculus ones now, they're a winner. You know, speculus like spread, mix that up in there. Or what they, Biscoff or whatever they you get with a coffee. Oh yeah, there's... New, I wasn't a fan of the savoury one, to be fair. The ham and parmesan, that was a bit... Yeah, I'm more of a sweet sweet one, me. But yeah, there's so many. Mango. There's been a lot of... There's been a few trial and, and errors. Um, there was one with like uh, some soy sauce and something else. That wasn't good. There was a spicy one. Wasn't so good. You just want sweet, really. And, and the fruit ones are always good. I like my rice cakes. <laughs> <laughs> James, this will sound strange, but but remember that the majority of us in the GTCC are not elite road riders. So when you're designing these foods for the riders and they dip in their hands into the musette, is there anything about not just the ease of what it's like in your mouth, but actually how physically possible it is to unwrap it at pace without taking both hands off the bars or to, to be able to sort of peel and eat and put a bit back in your jersey pocket? Yeah, absolutely, Tom. I think you've probably highlighted one of the biggest challenges I think and on fueling in certain stages is the actual physicality of unwrapping food so it is a, a challenge to make sure that all of the food is easy to open so on a real hard stage if it's full gas then of course you can't be spending your time unwrapping rice cakes or energy bars and quite often we would then fuel more with fluids so we would have more of our concentrated carbohydrate drinks for instance we we worked with Science and Sport one year to make a product called Beta Fuel. It contains the same amount of carbohydrate as four rice cakes. So in 500 mils of fluid, for a couple of mouthfuls, it's equivalent to the same as a rice cake. And so then that's just another practical example of fueling with minimal effort on your part. And actually, I think a lot of the amateurs that I've worked with over the years have also benefited from those types of approaches because fluids are, of course, an easy way to guarantee that carbohydrate intake. Quite boring at times but at least it hits the, the targets. Yeah, talking about that, in the cold and the wet, there's nothing worse than trying to get food out your back pocket. You know, you can't feel your hands. It is, it's a bit of a mission then. So if you've got a drink like that, which, you know, rocket fuel, we call it. And, you know, if you can just sip on that, then it's just so much easier. Like I remember back in the day with Science and Sport, actually, their old bars, they used to be rock solid. Like you could just hit them on your <laughs> handlebars and they'd burst out the wrapper, you know? And uh, it'd be... You could break your teeth trying to chew them, but they're a lot better now. But um, yeah, I think that the drinks is a big sort of game changer for us as well. But then it just adds another dimension to the whole thing. So we've got like, so we call our carbohydrate drinks by the amount of carbs they've got. So there's like a 20, a 40, and then the rocket fuel. Obviously you've got water, then you've got hydro 
juice, which is just a juice basically with a bit of taste. So it's not, it's a bit easier to drink than water. Then some guys like Froomey every year seemed to have a different thing he was into. So it was like coconut water or there was like aloe vera. What else was there? There was like maple syrup water. And by the end, everyone's like, geez, can we just like have a standard sort of like drinks protocol almost, you know? James, my worry for some of these, and I don't know how to put this politely, right? Sometimes if you try a new beverage or it's got like a high mix of carbs, then it can, let's say, can rattle through you. Yes, you're not wrong there, Tom. I think I think a lot of amateurs would experience that actually. And I would say the difference between the amateurs and the professionals is that the amateurs probably don't practice enough and they don't um, they don't grade it. So quite often they think, right, I'm going out today, I'm going to go full gas, 90 grams of carbs an hour, but they've never tried it before. And of course, that's disastrous for the gut. What you're better off doing is building up to that. So maybe you'll have a day where it's 30 grams, a couple of weeks where you then go 60 grams, then another couple of weeks where you practice on the 90 grams and eventually you're training your gut to be able to digest and absorb that carbohydrate. Where the professionals have been doing that for years. It's, it's very, very rare in my experience that you see a professional cyclist have bad guts because they've been doing it ever since they're a kid. Yeah, certainly bad guts from eating, like on the bike, a lot of heavy carbs. If you've had like, I was going to say a dodgy pint, but you're not going to have a dodgy pint either, are you? But if you've had a bit of something dodgy the night before this upset your stomach then like Dumoulin for instance in the Giro when he had to stop but obviously I don't think that was because of his rocket fuel or whatever I think it's more just an actual bug you know I think like like Murph said then you can't just go from you know st- like stopping for a carrot cake midway through a ride and then to suddenly having this this rocket fuel because it will just well yeah it'll rock it out the other end <laughs> James, can we talk about the thing that is variously known as the hunger knock or the bonk? Something that all cyclists go through. Yes. So that's probably, as you have mentioned, Tom, I think a lot of amateurs in particular experience this. And and it's really because they don't do the basics consistently well, which is they don't fuel frequently enough on the bike. What I often find with amateurs is that they'll go out for their rides and they won't feed from the beginning they'll start to feed maybe 90 minutes in. But of course, the damage has already been done by then. You should start to feed right from the beginning. And it's something as simple as every 15 to 20 minutes. And that will make a massive difference to your performance on the bike. And it will make a massive difference that you don't suffer from the bunk. So it's it's really about feeding early and often and hitting those basic targets consistently. It's almost a rite of passage, G, isn't it, your first bunk, if you don't mind me saying so? <laughs> Yeah, I remember the first time I actually blew up big time. It was like when I must have been 14 or something, going out on the club run. I had a big Chinese the night before. I'd had rice as well, not just chips this time. And uh, I was just like, I took my jam sandwiches in with me and my banana, but it wasn't enough. And I just remember that last like half an hour, I was coming back into Cardiff, coming from Newport Flats. You're getting into the city a bit. And my arms were just like, you get a warm, fuzzy feeling almost and feeling like jelly my legs were just you're just on autopilot like you just got one speed you just have to pedal because well you know you need to get home don't you and it's just like oh that feeling just being proper jelly and then getting to your door you can hardly get the key in the the hole and turn the you can hardly open your front door basically and 
luckily, you know, as I said, I was 14, so it was a Sunday. My mum had the roast ready on the table and oh, there's been no better Sunday roast I've ever had. But that feeling was like, <laughs> you know, when you've never experienced it properly like before, it's, uh, it's certainly a strange one, eh? You must have had, had it, Tom. It's so weird, isn't it? You're right, actually. The first time it happens, I remember coming back from a long ride and just being really confused where I was. Like, you're starting to see some black stars and then just thinking, where am I? Oh, right. And then you sort of get it back for about two or three minutes and then you go a bit deeper. And then you go back, like you say, you can't get into your house. And then I've had, I've had it once on a ride where I just laid down on the doorstep. It was quite a, quite a severe one. And I'd made it home and it was like, fine, I could just lie down here. I had a nice little sleep with my head on the doormat. And then about 20 minutes later, I was like, maybe I should go into the house. <laughs> you just raid the fridge then, don't you? Like if you're not 14 and you don't have a Sunday roast waiting for you, you just raid the fridge and you just eat like oh anything. And that's probably like when we go back to the start when I was talking about, you know, the low carb rides and just pushing the extremes. That's the problem then. Like if you've gone too extreme and then you starve and then you just overeat lunch and you eat the wrong stuff. And, you know, when you look at the day as a whole then that evening, you've probably eaten more than if you had just slowly drip fed through the ride. But there's no there's no better feeling, is there, than absolutely on your knees, just starving hungry, get back through the door and just boom, whatever's in that fridge. You And you'll go back to the same cupboard, I find, as well. Like You'll, you'll have a look in the cupboard and think, mm, nothing I fancy there. And you'll do a sweep of the rest of the kitchen and then you'll come back and look again in the same cupboard as if, like, magically, some new foods appeared in the cupboard. Oh, maybe this time. Oh, no, it's still the same food. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and and you know, Tom, that's an interesting thing, what you've said there from a nutritional perspective, because you're talking like a classic amateur in the sense that you have no plan and that you come back and you're just looking in the cupboards. And a lot of people ask me, how can amateurs improve? I would say it's actually have a plan to start with and you'll make better decisions and better choices. And for sure, you will get better rather than leaving it to chance. What's the bad stuff, James, for people who might do a nice four hour ride on a Saturday or Sunday with their club or with their mates. Almost the nicest thing about the last hour of that ride is the thought of what massive amount of food you're going to smash down you that evening. It's like it feels that it justifies whatever dietary choice you make. Like you could have fish and chips, you could have a curry, you could have a proper dirty Chinese. Anything wrong with that from an amateur perspective? Um, no, I, I don't think there is, Tom, because at the end of the day, the amateurs aren't elite athletes and we're we're riding our bike for enjoyment at the end of the day and a lot of cycling as the majority of this listeners listen to this podcast it's the social occasion as well um so i i'm certainly not preaching that all amateurs should become like g because it's just total opposite ends of the spectrum and if you do do a long ride and you want to have a treat that is the time to have it after those long rides because the muscle will then store the food that you're eating yeah i definitely agree I because uh, I get wound up when my father-in-law when we go out for food and he has a salad and I'm like why are you choosing to have a salad like I desperately want to have a burger but I'm having this salad because I have to as and it's the same like you know if if people go out and have a long ride treat yourself you know yeah you, you've burnt all those calories have a big dirty pizza or you know burger and all this and that like enjoy it you know yeah I'm gonna be so fat when I stop though. Oh. It's going to be great. <laughs> How long is it going to take for you to get fat, do you reckon? Uh, four weeks. 
That's probably <laughs> standard. <laughs> no, I think hopefully I won't get too big, but I'll certainly blow up to start with and I'll be like, oh man, I need to sort my, myself out here. And I'll probably sort of, I want to, I want to, I want to do Ironman though when I stop racing. So that'll keep me pretty fit, hopefully. That, that'll that be interesting, G, because that's, that's a bigger nutritional challenge than the Tour de France, an Ironman event probably. Yeah, well, we've got Cam Cameron Worth in, in the team now who's he's doing all the testing for me so he can pass on all his knowledge when when the time comes it's two things james that i've always wondered the first one of these is i if you are an elite rider but you're not a great cook what do you do in an evening are there any teams that would like just send a chef round or send like a really a really clean version of deliveroo round to help out those riders Believe it or not, that is what a lot of teams do these days. And, and in fact, not just in cycling, across sport in general, especially football at the minute, that's that's a common practice. I think a lot of us have the knowledge of what we should be doing, but actually putting that into practice in many situations is the bigger challenge. And the simplest way to overcome that when you're someone like Geraint and you're on his salary is you can get that elite Deliveroo to drop off your food every evening and take care of all of that stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, to be fair, before the Giro in 2020, last year, yeah, just to, to get down to the weight I needed to be, basically the nutritionist, we had a plan and there was a team chef in Nice at the time. So yeah, basically I just got all my food sent to me and then it was it just took out the the choice then. It's basically just eat that. Just like in the tour with Murph, it was just but the same as a home then really and it was just right, just eat eat that for lunch and dinner, have a snack on this or that, and that's it. And it's just it's purely a science then, you know, it's purely just as I said before, just fuel. And um that certainly helps, but you like for me I can't live like that the whole time. You know, so to be fair, in our house, Saar does most of the cooking. I can cook, but yeah, Saar's better. So, you know, it's better if she does it. And uh, But it's kind of like we're a team as well, in a way, because basically she, well, can't really have a proper job. Can't have, you know, the, the job that she wanted, really. She's had to move. She does a load of traveling. You know, it's not like you can have a nine to five or whatever. So it is kind of like a mini little team. And she's sort of like, holds the fort back here, you know, does a lot of the stuff. It's not like she's a, she's not my full-time swanny. She doesn't do my washing up and cleaning up after me, but she, she does the cooking. I don't mind cleaning up. That's not too bad on a Wednesday anyway. I've suddenly got this new level of sympathy for Saar where she's thinking, oh, what do I fancy for tea? And there's a little ring on the doorbell and your, your tea just arrives in a couple of boxes and you just go, yeah, I'm all right, Saar, what are you having? <laughs> yeah that that was actually the hardest bit for sarah as well because she's well i've had it as well you know when you're cooking for yourself you're kind of just like oh i can't be bothered or just have whatever something simple but when you're cooking for the the two of you or three of you now yeah you put a bit more effort in don't you so yeah that's life though isn't it james here's the other thing that i've always wondered there are so many gels that elite riders get through in stage races and look us amateurs don't mind a little nip on a gel as well. Is there anything about gels that is not good? Like, are they are they okay for your teeth? I suppose are they the sort of thing that are a necessary evil because they deliver quick carbs? Or are gels all fine? Yeah, that's probably a nice way to describe it, actually, is 
<laughs> is that necessary evil? Um, they're so good because they're so easy to digest and absorb. It, it really is fast fuel. On the flip side, as you've just mentioned, of course, it is sugar at the end of the day. And drinking sugar or taking sugar in a gel over the course of your career isn't good for your teeth. Um, that's a fact. So what I would say from gels is they're beneficial for performance. They're not good from that oral health perspective. The lads used to get their annual dentist checkup every year in pre-season to check in on their teeth. The other thing about gels as well, of course, is there's no other nutrients in them. So there's no fat or there's no protein. It's just providing the carbohydrate, whereas the rice cakes contain so much more. So really, you need both, Tom. You need, you need a mixture of those things to hit your daily fueling targets. What about cakes, Murph, then? From a nutritionist point of view, if you're going to stop and have a coffee and a cake, what's the best cake to have? Oh, that's a good question, G. Well, <laughs> I, I, I'm actually not... I, I couldn't give you the definitive answer on what's the best cake. All cakes are essentially carbohydrate at the end of the day. So whatever one you like the taste of and is going to make you eat that food, if you're an amateur and you do your coffee and cake right, there's certainly a place for it. And, and enjoy it. Enjoy your coffee and cake and enjoy being out on your bike. That's the most important thing. What would you have then? What's your cake if you're stopping? I actually don't like cake, Jay. I, I'd rather have a savoury type food. I, I never have desserts. I'd rather have two dinners for a start. <laughs> <laughs> when I'm out in a restaurant and they say, they say, do you want your dessert? And I say, no, but I'll have the menu again to have another main, please. <laughs> What about you, G? What would be your, your cake of choice if you were allowed cakes? Oh, it'd definitely be a carrot cake, I think. Welsh cakes are good, but, you know, carrot cake's the volume, isn't it? Oh, Murph, actually, in an earlier podcast, Tom mentioned his uh, Bakewell pudding, Bakewell tart fiasco. Basically, I think it was a pudding, Bakewell pudding that he had, and he ends up throwing that up. So should he have gone for the tart, nutritionally? <laughs> Or maybe he should have just trained his gut to have the Bakewell pudding more often. <laughs> was this during the ride itself, Tom? <laughs> what, what happened, James, was I decided, you know, sometimes you need motivation, James, on a ride. So where I, where I am in Cheshire, it's about 50 miles to Bakewell. So I was like, right, I'm gonna, I'll ride to Bakewell, have a Bakewell pudding, which obviously the town is famous for, and then cycle back. But, um, yeah, the pudding was quite heavy and uh, the roads out of Bakewell were quite steep and the pudding didn't get very far home. Now, I think there's a lesson in there for everyone, really, which is if you ingest too much of the wrong food at the wrong time, it's catastrophic for performance. <laughs> and a waste of money. Right, Bakewell Tart it is next time. All right, well, cheers. Thanks for coming, Murph. Appreciate that. Yeah, no problem. Tom, over three months now for you on Zwift. You must be getting fitter. Do I look leaner in cheekbone to you, G? Be honest, because if I don't, I'll just do more. No, you don't. You need to do more, mate. <laughs> You're asking for that. I think the problem is I am fitter, but because of lockdown, I have drunk considerably more. So Swift is mainly, I think it's rebalanced me a little bit. But that's good, isn't it? It's sort of keeping me on level. Yeah, it's offset the beer, which is good, no? I think so. Well, listen, if you fancy giving Swift a try, just go to Zwift.com to start your free trial. And that means, of course, you'll also be able to join our club ride every Wednesday at 6pm. Everyone is welcome. Tom, my favourite part of the pod, any other business um, where you just delegate a load of stuff? <laughs> 
I can't believe this is your favourite part of the pod. But, you know, I'm glad. I'm glad. <laughs> and first up, I'm going to appoint a club scientist. I don't entirely know why we need one, but at this point I'm feeling generous. And I'm letting lots of people onto this committee. So, Spencer Jones got in touch to say... I'd like to throw my name into the ring for club scientist. You never know when you might be riding along and need to settle a scientific debate. And he's actually a genuine Dr. G, so I think that means he's in, doesn't it? Yeah, fair play. And science was one of my favourite subjects at school, actually. A bit of biology, physiology is um, obviously of interest to us as we're all athletes in this club, aren't we? Technically. Yeah. Well, some of us some of, some of us are more athletic than others, I think it's probably fair to say, but yes. Yeah and uh, so that's interesting and then you know if he can throw in a bit of physics as well I love a bit of physics space and stuff you know take your mind off the pain of riding your bike yeah why not I hope he knows this stuff about space do you like space do you oh I love a bit of space yeah oh it's interesting though just out there who knows what's going on you know right Dr Spencer Jones in that case bring your space chat bring your space facts and you're in and this is a ludicrous thing for me to say, G, but if there is anyone who is a member of the GTCC who can somehow get a GTCC club jersey into space, let us know. <laughs> you know, like sometimes, sometimes there's like these small rockets that go off. They're not the ones you see on the news. They're just like small rockets taking things up to men's satellites. It'd be nice to see a GTCC jersey through a telescope orbiting the Earth, wouldn't it? <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a bit out there, Tom. But yeah, why not? Let's well aim for the stars, literally. No, I mean, no other cycling club has achieved it so far. So let's try and do it. Next up, Steve Long has applied for the position of official correspondent for Southwest Ontario. I mean, this does seem very, very specific. But I like G how he's gone down to the absolute minutiae to find himself a position on the committee. He also wants a Zwift ride on a North American time. Yeah, sound, yeah, up all over the world. Let's, you know, we're taking over, aren't we? We're not a club for just, you know, your local city or town. But yeah. Right, Steve, you're in. And finally, G, a shout out to Andrew Davies, who's doing the Wales in a Day Challenge on July the 17th with three mates. He's got a combined age of 230 years. Now, I don't know if that means that they are all, what would that be, over the age of 60, or if there's a 20-year-old and then a 30-year-old and someone who's the oldest man in Wales. I don't know. But the ride will take them from Carnarvon in North Wales to Chepstow in South Wales, not far from your wedding venue, G. Um, so it's the whole country from top to bottom in one day. That's ridiculous. 185 miles to raise money for St David's Hospice Newport and Alzheimer's Society Cymru. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, fair play. I think um, two points here. Andrew Davis, I actually know an Andrew Davis, used to ride with him, him and his brother, but I'm guessing it's a different Andrew Davis. How old was this Andrew Davis? Could he have a combined age of 230 with, with three mates? Well, he could, technically. He's two years younger than me and his three mates might be really old. But <laughs> he's probably not, is he? They're probably all around sort of 60, aren't they? But yeah, <laughs> fair play, that's a good challenge. I actually I did something very similar, also for Alzheimer's, and stroke must have been 2011. We did the same thing, so we went from south to north. It's all uphill that way, isn't it? They're all right coming down. It's all downhill. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we did it on tandem. Me and Sa. That was a bloody. That was a long day. I did it like the Saturday after the tour. So I had <sighs> the endurance in my legs. So, but well, that was a long day. We left at half five. Got up there about half seven. 
there's a big barbecue up there waiting for us at the Denby Cricket Club because Kassar's tied granddad uh, passed away like with Alzheimer's and he had a few strokes and stuff so we were doing it for that and then he was a big you know cricketer up in Denby so that's where we finished nice. so that, was, that was a great day yeah so fair play Andrew good luck with uh, your mates did you go on the front of the tandem or the back oh I was on the front come on so were you are you absolutely certain that Sarah was pedaling when she said she was pedaling well yeah a lot of people were saying this to her <laughs> and uh, after how many hours was it it was you know, it was over 12 hours so she, yeah she was getting a bit irritated by that comment by the end <laughs> <laughs> Uh, especially when a load of people met us, met us about 20 miles from the end like it was a good amount of people 40 odd and then some of them wanted to race me and like oh can I just test yeah. myself against you I was like mate just <laughs> turn, turn professional enter the Tour de France and then come and test yourself against me there not when I've just <laughs> ridden up from Cardiff with my missus like on a tandem but yeah no it was a good day it was a good day Andrew, good luck from us and maybe keep us posted. Let us know how you get on. And if you fancy listening to another pod on your rides this week, Tom, what can our listeners try out? Yeah, how about this one, G? How about Death of a Sports Star? It's presented by the legendary Elroy Spoonface Powell. You can check out episodes about Kobe Bryant, about Payne Stewart, Marco Pantani, Flojo, John Alomu and more. There's a new episode out every Monday. Just search for Death of a Sports Star. Yeah, cool. I like that. So, uh, yeah, see you next week, Tom. See you then. That was the Garrett Thomas Cycling Club. Thanks to our GTCC scientist, Dr. Spencer Jones, our official correspondent for Southwest Ontario, Steve Long, to our head of social media, Fionn Clark, our head of music, Emma Hickman, our treasurer, Diane Barker, and our honorary president, Mike Conn. And of course, most of all, to you for listening. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. <laughs>